Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Louisa's Fall. Today, we're so excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Matthew Reznicek. He is an associate professor at Creighton University, where his research focus is broadly on Irish and British literature from the long 19th century, as well as medical humanities. His first book, The European Metropolis, Paris, and 19th Century Irish Women Novelists, was published by Clemson University Press under the Liverpool University Press. His current monograph project, Healing the Nation, Women, Medicine, and the National Tale, explores the representations of women as healers in the romantic national tales of Mariah Edgeworth, Sidney Owenson, Walter Scott, Germaine de Stahl, and Jane Austen which makes him a perfect guest to talk today about our topic. Welcome, Matthew. Thanks so much for having me. This is really exciting. So before we get started, we did want to do a bit of a content warning since we will be discussing traumatic brain injury today. Additionally, this episode topic comes in part from a listener request to discuss Louisa's fall. Listener Mary Margaret has a personal connection with this topic. She says, I was in a really bad car wreck a couple of years ago. I was put on extreme bed rest for several months to treat my traumatic brain injury. I could only lay in bed in a dark room and listen to audiobooks. I listened to all of Austin on repeat. I was fascinated to re-listen to Louisa's recovery during my own. And so we just wanted to thank you, Mary Margaret, for writing in and sharing your experiences with us and for requesting this episode. And we should also say that Mary Margaret did give us permission to share all of these details with you all. So we are returning to persuasion for today's episode, and more specifically to the Cobb in Lyme Regis. The Musgroves, Captain Wentworth, Captain Bedick, and Anne are taking a final stroll along the Cobb before they plan to return to Uppercross. Then the walk takes a pretty dramatic turn. So there's, there's some abbreviation to the passage that I'm going to be reading today, but it does start with Captain Wentworth advising Louisa against jumping down these stairs. He thought the jar too great. But no, he reasoned and talked in vain. She smiled and said, I am determined I will. He put out his hands. She was too precipitate by half a second. She fell on the pavement on the lower cob and was taken up lifeless. There was no wound, no blood, no visible bruise. But her eyes were closed. She breathed not. Her face was like death. The horror of the moment to all who stood around. And then after the scene, we get Anne essentially directing some triage for the injury. She calls for a surgeon. They get her to the Harville's home. And then we get a diagnosis from the surgeon that this is a contusion to the brain. And that's kind of where we start with our episode today. So Matthew, this is obviously a very dramatic scene in the book, not least of all because we're getting an actual trauma represented on screen, as it were, as well as the initial triage and short-term care. So, So Anne is one of the who's really directing this scene. Of course, there is a lot to be said about Austin's characterization in this scene, but can you also tell us a bit more about how well Austin gets her Regency first aid facts here? Yeah. So what's really interesting in this scene is kind of the way that Austin pairs the Regency first aid facts with her characterization of Anne. Anne really stepping into her own as the first time as an authority figure kind of throughout the novel gives us the sense of 
agency and value that she had lacked through the majority of the first half of the narrative. The most important thing that, that I think is intriguing is that Anne immediately sends for the surgeon. Yeah. And of course, thinking about the distinction between surgeons, physicians, and apothecaries, this isn't surprising. Like they're not talking about someone who's going to go crack open the cavity like Christina Yang. <laughs> We're talking about someone who is more associated with setting bones, kind of the day-to-day, a slightly lower class, more affordable medical professional than a physician. And it's repeated in a bunch of different narratives. And I'm thinking also of Mariah Edgeworth's Ennui, where they use the door as the way we would think about using a C-collar to help protect the neck from, from movement. So there's clearly an awareness about the way that the neck and the spine would be damaged by too much jostling in this state of sort of incapacity. So Austin gets a lot of that right. The quick movement into a stable environment outside of the elements and then immediately bringing in the surgeon, all of that kind of tracks pretty well. And it also shows kind of increasingly awareness about what's happening inside the brain that that tracks with the latter half of the 18th century. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of developments happening in kind of the way that people are understanding brains and how they affect, you know, the idea of a mind versus a brain. Like that's a distinction that's kind of coming up in this period, right? Exactly. And we're also beginning to see early discussions around, especially coming out of School of Medicine up in Edinburgh, questions around the swelling of the brain. So, so we're beginning to understand and think about the concept of the concussion as brain swelling and the response to that. So once the surgeon arrives, Louisa is diagnosed as suffering from a contusion and concussion. And for the rest of the novel, we're giving these updates and details about her progress. For instance, she stays at rest in this low-lit room with, and this is a quote from the book, Benick sitting at her elbow, reading verses or whispering to her all day long. How well do you think Austin is is depicting the medical procedures for long-term care for treating this kind of brain injury? both for her own day, but also for ours. Yeah, so so I'm going to start with the 18th, 18th, 19th century. The low lighting, the quiet noise, the lack of, of disturbance, I think is really key. It again tracks across a bunch of different novels in which a concussion is sort of a key plot device. Going back to Edgeworth's novel Ennui, even to some extent Edgeworth's Belinda, where there's this sort of maintaining a darkness and a quietness in the boudoir. So keeping the patient at ease was really important, oftentimes supplemented with laudanum and opium tinctures. So the focus on keeping them quiet, keeping them at ease, and especially Benick is not just there as an audiobook reader, an audible account. Those six months free are really key. (laughs) But he's also there to make sure that she remains at ease and stable, to monitor breathing, to monitor kind of restlessness. Mm. In a similar way that, despite my size, I played football in high school and suffered a couple of concussions. And again, the big concern is waking up the person every couple of hours to make sure that they are still breathing. Right. So a lot of this mirrors kind of our current practice, maybe maybe not having a rugged English captain sitting by (laughs) you reading. But that's an ideal scenario. If wishing made it so. Because it is interesting because they do talk about, in the novel, Austin makes it very clear that she has multiple nurses attending to her, to Louisa. So we have initially, Mrs. Harville is a very good nurse. They make that very clear that that's why Anne is able to leave 
Lyme, but then they also say that once they get to Uppercross that that they're going to bring Louisa's nursemaid back. So there is this this like there's this cohort of nurses that she, that she gets to have around her. But it's interesting that like that's framed at the very very beginning of her recovery, but the long term of the recovery is very much so framed in terms of Benick and his attentions. Yeah. One thing that I find really interesting about the number of women as carers in this section, there's a fabulous book by Lisa Foreman Cody called Birthing the Nation. And it talks about the development of gendered practices within medicine, arising specifically out of the anxiety of feminine knowledge of the body. And so, of course, this relates mainly to pregnancy and and childbirth. But you can see here that it is a medicalized knowledge that's that's uniquely gendered. Yes, there's the surgeon, but everyone else is is female. And Benick is not providing medical care so much as kind of supervisory care. Right. And so that's really interesting. And it contrasts with what E.J. Cleary describes in her book about Austin being a notoriously bad nurse, like uninterested, impatient. The only person she really cared for throughout an illness was one of her brothers. Austin had this reputation of being a fairly bad nurse when it came to dealing with sick people, sick siblings. Kind of the total opposite of Anne Elliot. Right. Near the end of the novel, Charles Musgrove specifically points out that Louisa has changed since her injury. So when Anne asks him, you know, is is Louisa fully recovered? He answers, very much recovered, but she's altered. There is no running or jumping about, no laughing or dancing. It is quite different. If one happens only to shut the door a little hard, she starts and wriggles like a young dab chick in water. There's a pretty dramatic shift that her brother is noticing. So how does this phenomenon fit within the context of of Regency medicine? So Sir Gilbert Blaine, who was the physician of the fleet for the Royal Navy, argued that the incidence of insanity in the Royal Navy was estimated at one in a thousand, which was seven times that of the general population coming out of the Napoleonic Wars. And he explicitly identified head injuries as the cause of this exponential increase in post-traumatic stress disorder. Not that he called it that. Of course. But so it's interesting that they're seeing that Austin is registering these personality shifts as the connected to what we now recognize as traumatic brain injury. And the physician of the fleet is seeing similar things out of, again, head injuries in the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like in this example with Louisa, part of that could certainly be from the traumatic brain injury. But so much of this could also be very emotional in that post-traumatic stress disorder where, I mean, obviously the two are very linked, but where even if she had fully physically recovered, let's pretend they had a Regency MRI machine and, you know, we have confirmed that she's completely fine again. I could still see that after having such a traumatic fall, yeah, you hear like a door slam or a sudden noise or anything, like it's probably going to be upsetting considering what she's been through and what her recovery was like. And this in some ways brings us back to Benick as well. And we know that before the fall, Anne encouraged him to read less poetry to affect his, what we might recognize as depression. And we don't know what Benick is reading, Louisa. But if you presume that it is Byron or something perhaps melancholic, as was Benick's want, and you follow the pattern that 
Benick's reading produced melancholy in his own personality, then potentially his quote unquote nursing might be affecting Luisa's personality. And of course, we can just blame Byron. Well, obviously, obviously. <laughs> but they do, I mean, like, because, because when right before Louisa falls, he and Anne are discussing Byron specifically. So we don't know if that's what he's reading to Louisa, but I mean, it's right there. And Austin is not ever going to make a casual reference to an author and what impact they have on a character. So yeah, this Byronic vibes that we're getting from Benick makes sense. It does definitely seem like there is some change of Louisa's personality that we are seeing in tandem, like you said, Matthew, with Captain Benick's attentions. And I want to clarify for our listeners that I think some of what Austin is doing here is a very, not at all a modern understanding of mental health and depression and how those things work. You know, obviously, if somebody is depressed, reading cheerful literature is not going to, it's not going to fix your depression. Right. But, you know, she does seem to be drawing some some parallels here with both of these characters undergoing this dramatic change during the novel. So I'm just curious, Matthew, if you have any other thoughts on this kind of track that Benick and Louisa seem to be on together. I mean, in many ways, Anne is nursing Benick before she begins and is called upon to nurse Louisa in an attempt to bring him out of his melancholy and out of his, what again, what we would recognize as depression, the loss of his fiance, and coming out of the Napoleonic Wars, right. which might be, its own, again, its own form of PTSD. I don't think that I had personally made that connection before. You know, I, I was thinking of Benick's depression as being related to lovelornness, perhaps because of the Byronic implant that we kind of get there with the text. But it's very important, as you just pointed out, Matthew, not to not to overlook the fact that, yeah, he's been a naval captain in a really serious war. You know, the fact that the other naval captains that we're getting and the Admiral, the fact that they don't have what we recognize as, as depression or trauma doesn't mean that it's not being manifest in different ways and that, that his might be a manifestation of that. And, and again, while they might call it melancholy, right, there is a recognition of the role of emotions. And, and Austin is really aware, going back to Sense and Sensibility, of the relationship between emotional health and physical health. And there's also a sense in which indulging too much in that melancholic element for Austin kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and exacerbates what might already be an underlying condition. Kind of follows the logic of the narrative that Austin has set up. So as a novel in general, persuasion seems very intentional in its use of medical conditions throughout the text. We get Mary's illness when she arrives at Uppercross, you know, and then we get obviously Charles Musgrove and his dislocated collarbone, potential back injury. We've got Bennick's depression, Louise's fall, Mrs. Mrs. Smith. I mean, it's, it's an entire list of all these medical conditions. So, so what is it, do you think, that's drawing Austin to these depictions? Why is there such a focus on medicine in this particular work. So I think John Wiltshire points out that Austin's been interested in medicine and especially the body and care in all of her works. And if you look forward to Sanditon, a novel that's set in a health resort town on the coast of England, is becoming potentially more pronounced. And it's hard not to read Persuasion as kind of a novel about aging. Well, yeah, because Anne is a haggard old crone. Right. So. Exactly. Right. Uh, yes. That's indisputable. Totally. <laughs> 27. Entirely too old to be in love or anything like that. Indeed. And equally, 
It's a novel about care and agency. In her fabulous new book, Communities of Care, Talia Schaefer argues that in order to avoid the threat of abuse in the carer and cared for relationship, both need to feel heard and valued. Mm. And it's so important, I think, to read Anne, especially when I talk to like my nursing students and my medical students about a carer who is not valued for what she brings. And that's why this scene is so pivotal, right? Like it shapes not only Anne's sense of self, but especially Wentworth begins to see her in a different light. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's he's like, oh, this like, very calm, capable woman, you know, mm-hmm. she's getting it done. Well, and it's, and it's interesting, too, you know, because you're mentioning that, of, of course, she goes into full on triage nurse mode, and it's very powerful. There's actually a line, Wentworth is holding Louisa, and he actually is looking around. He's frantic. And he's saying, is there no one to help me? And he's he's incapable of movement or action or reaction. And it's Anne who's like, I'm going to read this little passage. She says, go to him, go to him. For heaven's sakes, go to him. I can support her myself. Leave me and go to him. Rub her hands, rub her temples. Here are the salts. Take them, take them. It's so powerful. And the fact that what you're mentioning here, Matthew, is, is bringing home that idea of being seen as, as a caregiver, as, as someone who is powerful in that moment. It's pretty amazing. I just, I feel like it's the perfect novel for thinking about care in our pandemic, mm. right? Like the exhaustion that our carers undergo and carers in whatever sense, right? Parents, teachers, nurses, physicians, PTs, OTs, insert whatever. It's sort of this persuasion moment where like, oh my God, like these people jumped into the breach when we were all paralyzed or incapacitated by not knowing what was happening. Well, and and you had mentioned on Twitter earlier that you had described to your students that persuasion is one of the most compassionate of Austen's novels. And I would, I would love to hear you just kind of expound on that because I thought it was so profound. I mean, profundity on Twitter feels very Byronic. It, it does, doesn't it? I think it's the novel of Austen's that expresses the greatest sense of concern, right? Unlike most of the other characters, with the exception maybe of Fanny Price, Anne is not your typical heroine. She's shunted to the side. She's overlooked. She's not the eldest sister, all these things. And yet she's the one for whom Austin calls out our empathy. And yet she also continuously responds in an empathic manner, even when her empathy has been overlooked and disregarded. And so it both shows like the exhaustion that is created by empathy, empathy burnout, but also in making that representation shows the readers the need for empathy for the carers, the people who provide care. I feel like it also speaks to the empathy that we need to be having for Louisa as well, who is in the situation where she, we would presume for some of it, doesn't know what's happening and then is slowly starting to realize what is happening. And, you know, when you're in that kind of position, she has very little agency over what's happening to her, over her own body, over who she sees. You know, she she gets the nurse that she gets. She gets the the visitors that she gets. And I would imagine that is going to be a time of a lot of confusion and anxiety for obviously the people around her, but also for her as well. And like that image of the fainted or unconscious woman is so key in literature going 
through Radcliffe and Richardson and Clarissa and into, I mean, the obvious scene in North and South. Yeah. It's such an evocation of sensibility and sympathy. I think it's interesting too, with just the way that the novel depicts, I mean, obviously we have this moment, very, very dramatic moment with Louisa, but then Austin kind of lets Louisa recover away from the prying eyes. Louisa never comes back into the scene. Everybody who's come to Bath from that family, I mean, Louisa is noticeably not present. And I think that, again, it kind of goes to this idea of taking care of her continued, like that it's a continual thing that this is, you know, she doesn't maybe want to be in a in a metropolitan area where there's a lot going on. She maybe wants to be with, with Benick, who understands her and is a place of safety and comfort. And I think that that's, again, a very specific choice. I mean, it's not, it's not that it wouldn't have been an interesting plot point if, you know, Captain Wentworth had run into her and in Bath, but I just, you know, it's, that's not real to kind of what's happened to her. Especially if we, like you pointed out, that she is frightened by overstimulation. And so we that almost brings up like this idea of the condition of modernity as a source of threat to your health in a way that like anticipates Simmel and all these kind of theorists of modernity in the way that impacts nerves. Yeah, definitely. And also speaks to the fact that a recovery of this sort, it's not like it's done. Right. You know, yeah. I would imagine it's the sort of thing like, okay, you're now in a position where you don't need to be in bed all the time. You can now start to go out of the house. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you are back to exactly how you were before. In that sense, it kind of reminds us of what scholars of disability argue about disability and ability not being an on-off yes. switch, but a spectrum, right? And and because Austin has done that through woven medical conditions and situations throughout the novel, it does feel like like she's drawing attention to that. I mean, we also, I don't mean to get too, you know, it's it's, it's weird to bring too much of like, Austin meant this as her own life. But I mean, she's dealing with a medical condition while she's writing this. So of course, she'd be more sensitive, I think, to the conditions of her characters and what that might mean for them in their mental health. So Matthew, where can our listeners find you online and follow along with your current projects? You can find me on Twitter far too often when I should be <laughs> writing at Dr. Resnicek. There'll be gr plenty of photos of my dog while we're working on this. Well, thank you again, Matthew, for being for being on our episode today. I really, really enjoyed getting to chat with you about this. It was my pleasure. Thank you both. Thank you again to Matthew for joining us for today's discussion. You can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com, and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. Stay tuned for next episode when we'll be talking about linens in Sense and Sensibility. Thanks for listening. 